Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. In early April 1995, two gray-haired baby boomers of intemperate habits, large appetites and ideological fervor tempered by pragmatic ambition, wrapped their mitts around a big question in American life. What good is government? One respondent to this question was the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. The other was the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Each man fancied himself a transformational figure. And so when Newsweek magazine put this puzzler before them, they lunged at the chance to give sweeping answers that would be one day the guideline for artisans, chiseling their words into the soft marble of monuments erected in their honor. Bill Clinton cited government's role in desegregating schools and helping the poor. That's what government was for. That's what had inspired him to get into public service. The difference between the Republicans and me, said the president, is that I still believe that the federal government has an affirmative responsibility to help people to make the most of their own lives. Newt Gingrich, the Speaker of the House, agreed the government was useful. Government does some things very well, said the Speaker. It defends the nation. It keeps the peace. It freed the slaves. It builds useful things like the Panama Canal and enables valuable research like discovering the cure for polio. It can shape market forces, creating the right incentives for saving or investing. But, Gingrich went on, to a point. He argued that the federal welfare state had moved assistance too far from those who needed it. This led to bureaucracy and inefficiency. He wanted to move things to the local level and encourage volunteerism, do things that had drained out of American life and that led the country to the fix that it was in. These two viewpoints were more alike than people thought, said the speaker in Newsweek. I don't believe President Clinton and I are really that far apart on what needs to be done. I don't know any politician in America who has a better intuitive sense of re-engineering government and society of the world market, and of information technologies. When you talk to President Clinton, he gets it. I think if the president were a Republican, we could work together easily. But they didn't work together easily at all. Seven months later, their clash would lead to two government shutdowns. That story in a moment after a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is April 5th. 1995, a white-haired gentleman from a very powerful office has asked the television networks to carry his address to the nation, live to the nation. But it's not the president who normally is accorded that kind of platform. It's the Speaker of the House. It is the first time someone in that post has addressed the country, not in response to or following an address by the president. Last September, the House Republicans signed a contract with America. We signed this contract and made some promises to you and to ourselves. You elected us, and for the last 93 days, we have been keeping our word. With your help, we're bringing about real change. CBS was the only network to carry the speech, but CNN and CNBC did too. The 51-year-old speaker perched on the side of his desk for 42 minutes, kicking off his remarks by showing a letter sent to him by a young boy. Enclosed in the letter, or with the letter, was a picture of George Washington. The tableau, both on the screen and in the plucky young artist's colored paper rendering, was clear. This was a presidential-level moment, even if it was not a president doing the talking. 
By contrast, 11 days later, the gray-haired fellow who was the actual president, it said so on the blue zipper jacket he wore on Air Force One, was not able to yield as large an audience. Bill Clinton's White House press conference on April 18th of 1995 was only covered by one major television network. In that give-and-take with reporters, the 42nd president spent some portion of the after-dinner hour arguing that he was still a player in American politics. The Constitution gives me relevance. The power of our ideas gives me relevance. The record we have built up over the last two years and the things we're trying to do to implement it give it relevance. The president is relevant here. As Gil Troy writes in his book, The Age of Clinton, each repetition of the word relevant reinforcing his marginality. As we record this history of government shutdowns, the longest government shutdown in history is taking place. It is January of 2019. Though there have been shutdowns or near shutdowns since the Clinton and Gingrich era, the shutdowns of the mid-1990s represented a high point in the history of clashes that have caused the lights to go out and the wheels of government to stop spinning. What is immediately apparent when you spend time in 1995, though, is that the nature of the debate was so much larger back then than it is today. This spat in 2019 is about who is going to pay for a wall on the southern border. Donald Trump promised during the campaign that he would build such a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Here's a quote from a campaign document. It's an easy decision for Mexico. Make a one-time payment of 5 to $10 billion to ensure that the $24 billion continues to flow into their country year after year. Two years later, after the president made that promise, the wall has not been built. The president has abandoned his position that Mexico will pay for it directly. Instead, he would like Congress to pay for it. Democrats who control the House after an election in which Republicans lost 39 seats have refused, and this has led to the longest government shutdown in American history. Small business loans have stopped, paychecks to the 800,000 workers are not being sent, and airport security lines snake out the door. This is a heated political moment in 2019, but compared to 1995, the scope of the debate is quite small. Gingrich and Clinton, for all of their personal shortcomings, were taking on the enormous issues of the day and applying the full wattage of their brains and the best minds of their camps to address those questions. The shutdowns of 1995 were fought on honest turf, the direction of government, and the methods best suited to its purposes. That isn't to say that the methods used in that fight were always honest, but the competition was on the grand sweep and scope of American government. That's why Newsweek posed such a grand question. The current shutdown is based around an argument about a much more narrow idea, that there is an emergency at the border and that the president's wall is the only way to address it. Here's how whistle-stop in-house historian Brian Rosenwald compares the two. Yes, immigration and the wall are about the cultural conception of Americanism, but it's still one relatively narrow issue, whereas the 1995 fight was over entitlements, welfare, and basically conservatives' first truly legitimate shot to try to undo or at least reduce the Great Society programs. And here is Newt Gingrich in 1995 setting the stakes for the budget debate that would be the central core issue in the shutdowns of 1995. The speaker said, the balanced budget discussion this spring is very serious business. It's about more than just economics. It speaks to where we've been as a society, where we are, and where we need to go 
as we approach the 21st century. Developing a balanced budget is the first essential step we need to restore an American civil society. So, you see, restoring American civil society, the stakes pretty much can't get any bigger than that. In the fall of 1995, Bill Clinton was climbing back up to onto his feet after he had been mired in the bog of despair. He had not had a sterling beginning to his presidency. Four months into his term, his approval rating was at 36%. In February of 1993, it had been as high as 64%. By the summer of 1993, Time magazine was depicting Bill Clinton in Lilliputian terms. On the magazine's cover, a tiny Clinton looked up at the unflattering headline, The Incredible Shrinking President, in a font large enough to be used on the outside of one of Donald Trump's buildings. Writing in the magazine, Michael Duffy declared, a presidency that has been beset since its inception by miscalculations and self-inflicted wounds. Clinton had been elected in 1992 and come into office to pull the federal government back from the Reagan revolution towards something more in line with the New Deal idea of the safety net, but not to go too far. He had promised to do it as a modern Democrat who governed from the center-left. But Clinton stumbled early trying to overturn the military's ban on gay servicemen and women, but ultimately hitting on the don't-ask-don't-tell policy, which pleased neither the military nor his ardent supporters. Two of his appointments for attorney general had to withdraw, and a controversy over the firing of the members of his travel office gave his administration a somewhat hapless aura. Clinton's early budget balancing had shifted priorities as he had promised in the campaign, but his tax increase on top earners had allowed opponents to paint him as a tax-and-spend liberal, though he'd raised taxes to take on a GOP priority, a growing budget deficit. The economic revival and budget balancing that defined the strong economic record of Clinton's two-term presidency would not come and be in evidence until later, so it wasn't on the books here in 19, this period in 1995. The president's party base might have liked the higher taxes that he levied on the fat cats, but... They were sore with him for pushing for the North American Free Trade Agreement, which passed over the opposition of House Majority Democratic House Majority Leader Dick Gephardt. Clinton's health care reform plan was defeated in 1994. You know about that, although it wasn't defeated so much as it was never brought up for a vote because it was so toxically unpopular. One aside I want to make about the North American Free Trade Agreement Clinton had done the bipartisan thing. He'd worked with both sides. He's, he'd not done the liberal thing, it had, and, and yet it won him no political juice. It will be the subject for another uh, future whistle-stop, whether when a president acts in this bipartisan manner, whether it's from the center-left or center-right, but essentially uh, does what um, displeases some people in his party, displeases some people in the other party, but puts together a coalition that can vote in the middle— whether that ever does a president any good. Because in Clinton's case, it didn't. And this raises the issue of whether the idea that presidents are supposed to do hard, cross-cutting things really benefits them electorally. Now you can argue, well, who cares whether it benefits them? They're supposed to do the right thing. But this is what voters say they want. They want presidents to act non-ideologically. Well, that's what Clinton did on NAFTA, and it, it may not particularly have helped him. But we'll address that in its own episode later. Back to our narrative. Uh, here is how Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer put it in their book, Fault Lines. 
In the end, Clinton emerged from these fights over gays in the military, the progressive tax increase, and health care reform as little more than a caricature of outdated liberalism. During his run for the presidency, he'd managed to escape the fate of Michael Dukakis. But now that he was president, Clinton had essentially been painted into the same corner. Though we started this episode with Newt Gingrich sounding quite reasonable, well, that was not how he came to power. Gingrich had rallied conservatives in opposition to moderates in his own party and, of course, to Democrats, who he referred to occasionally as evil. During the George Herbert Walker Bush presidency, Gingrich's relentless pursuit of the Democratic House Speaker was rewarded when that Speaker, Jim Wright, was investigated and found to have improperly profited from the sales of his book and was, was run out of office. In 1994, Gingrich dubbed Democrats enemies of normal people in his rise to power. And what he meant by normal was clear. And now I'm going back to, to uh Kevin Cruz and Zelizer, who write in Fault Lines, With Clinton, many conservatives saw him as the embodiment of everything they hated about the revolutions of the 1960s. He was married to a working woman. He admitted experimenting with drugs. And he seemed to them morally suspect. I would add to this that if Clinton hadn't dodged the draft outright, he'd certainly sashayed around it. Gingrich's language was informed by pollster Frank Luntz, who had done focus groups to test this language, and it was meant, the language used by Gingrich and his Republicans running for office in 1994, to wound and stir an emotional response. According to a Luntz memo, language a key mechanism of control. Democrats were to be labeled as sick and destructive. Gingrich and Republicans offered a conservative opportunity to society versus the Democrats who were peddling what they called the liberal welfare state. Let's stop and pause on this language point for just a moment. Why is it important to this budget fight? Well, the hard language that equated Democrats with big government, which was then equated with rot and anti-Americanism, was key to Newt Gingrich's success in rising up and defeating Democrats in 1994. But that language, which was so memorable, also meant that Gingrich and Republicans and the talk radio hosts who had hoisted them to victory would also be the first fingered when the public turned against that kind of sour rhetoric. Gingrich's attention to words all seemed very fussy, like one of his harebrained schemes. He always had some kind of idea about this, that, or the other thing. But, and some of the ideas were, in fact, out there. All of that caused people, particularly members of the GOP establishment, to kind of underestimate Gingrich. But the Georgia congressman was patient and ruthless, and his style and wordplay were perfect for the growing era of talk radio. A fun fact from Fault Lines. In 1960, there were only two all-talk radio stations in America. By 1995, there were 1,130. Why the change? The death of the Fairness Doctrine, which required that political views be balanced by opposing political views. Rush Limbaugh was becoming a force in American life. In the 1992 election, President George Herbert Walker Bush invited him to stay in the Lincoln bedroom. And as Limbaugh told his audience, President Bush insisted on carrying Limbaugh's bag into the White House. 1994, Limbaugh told his audience that the midterms would amount to what he called Operation Restore Democracy. When the voters finally got their crack at steering the wheel of democracy at the polls in November of 1994, they delivered a historic victory to Gingrich and the conservative movement that he had quietly been building since he came to the House. Republicans captured the House with a 52-seat gain, resulting in a 230-204 to majority. 
The the GOP also won in the Senate, winning eight Democratic seats to gain a 53-47 to majority. Bob Dole would be the majority leader. It was also the first time, it was the first time in 42 years that Republicans had captured the House of Representatives. The Gingrich era dawned on Washington with force and a considerable stylistic change. It was nothing less than a revolution. I'm going to let historian Gil Troy write the establishing paragraph of this part of our narrative. Not since Woodrow Wilson moved into the White House in 1913 had an academic altered Washington's power structure so dramatically. Gingrich had been a history professor. Wilson expanded the presidency by making the chief executive more prime ministerial, addressing Congress directly, shepherding legislation more intensely. Gingrich contracted the presidency by making the speaker more prime ministerial, addressing the people directly, and trying to make his office the center of American politics. Gingrich took hold of his gavel and delivered the first speech as speaker as if he were delivering an inaugural address. Grandiose, some people have called it. Others have written about how Newt Gingrich's brand of politics destroyed politics. But given the road he'd taken to high office, calling Democrats evil and the opposite of everything in good in American life, he nevertheless treated that party, the opposition party, with respect as he started his remarks on the floor of the House of Representatives. Here's his opening remarks. Let me say, first of all, that I am very deeply grateful to my good friend Dick Gephardt, uh, I couldn't help but, on my side, maybe overreacted to your statement ending 40 years of democratic rule. That I couldn't help but look over at Bob Michael, who has often been up here and who knows that everything Dick said was true. That this is difficult and painful to lose. And on my side of the aisle, we have, uh, for 20 elections, been on the losing side. And yet, there is something so wonderful about the process by which a free people decides things. That, in my own case, I lost two elections, and with the good help of my friend Vic Fazio, came close to losing two others. (laughs) And uh, I'm sorry, guys, it just didn't quite work out. (laughs) And yet I can tell you that every time when the polls closed and I waited for the votes to come in, I felt good because win or lose, we've been part of this process. In a little while... I'm going to ask the Dean of the House, John Dingle, to swear me in, to insist on the bipartisan nature of the way in which we together work in this House. John's father was one of the great stalwarts of the New Deal, a man who, as an FDR Democrat, created modern America. And I think that John and his father represent a tradition that we all have to recognize and respect and recognize that the America we are now going to try to lead grew from that tradition and is part of that great heritage. From there, House Republicans were off to the races, working to achieve their contract with America in 100 days. Lickety-split. That contract with America had a series of provisions. It required that all laws that apply to the rest of the country would also apply to Congress. It selected an independent auditing firm to audit Congress for waste, fraud, and abuse. It cut the number of House committees, limited the terms of all committee chairs, banned the casting of proxy votes. The Republicans also promised to bring to the floor a balanced budget requirement, tax cuts for small business, families and seniors, term limits for legislators, Social Security reform, tort reform, and welfare reform. Now, the Republicans in the House would need Republicans in the Senate to pass what they passed. The Democratic president would also have to sign their bills. But 
At the beginning of the Gingrich Congress, the moment the goal was really just to pass the bills in their legislative body first, in the first 100 days particularly, uh, and then figure out things from there. Bill Clinton's response to the massive Republican victory and the fast off-the-mark movement of the Republican House was to t- return to what had elected him. He embarked on a policy of triangulation as formulated by his secretive political guru, Dick Morris. Morris was so secretive, he was a former GOP strategist, that Clinton referred to him when he talked on the telephone, not as Dick or Mr. Morris or anything like that. He called him Charlie. So his more liberal aides, well, all of his aides, frankly, wouldn't know who he was talking to. Morris's idea was to position the president between the extremes of both sides and to cast him in the public eye as something other than the doctrinaire liberal of the GOP caricature. It would take some time to accomplish, but the first steps began with Clinton's first meeting with Morris in January 19 of 1995. The core of the strategy, Morris wrote, was to embrace parts of the Republican initiative, to work to eliminate the deficit, require work for welfare, cut taxes, and reduce the federal bureaucracy. Those were all things Clinton had talked about on the campaign in 1992, so in a sense, this kickoff thinking in the beginning of 1995 was just getting back to the middle. But of course, the tactics would be what was so fascinating as the year 1995 would wear on. In his memoir, Bill Clinton made the case for triangulation as something noble and not sleazy. I had always tried to synthesize new ideas and traditional values and to change government policies as conditions changed. Liberals in his administration revolted against the notion of triangulation when they saw it because they thought that Clinton was selling out his principles of of progressivism. On April 7th, the same day that Newt Gingrich gave his national address, an address that was to update the country on the progress of his revolutionaries in completing the agenda items on the contract with America, Bill Clinton spoke to the American Society of Newspaper Editors, and in that speech, he outlined his criteria for policy. Does an idea expand middle-class incomes and opportunities? Does it promote values like family, work, responsibility, and community? Does it strengthen the hand of America's working families in a global economy? It was an intentional contrast, writes Steve Kornacki in his book, The Red and the Blue. Clinton was reclaiming his spot in the main ring and defining how he would and wouldn't deal with that new Congress going forward. And notice the words he's using. Values, responsibility, family, work, community. All of those were meant to set off emotional responses of the kind and very similar ways in which all those Gingrich words were supposed to rile up voters. Now, when Gingrich said that the the Democrats were evil and McGovern Nicks, he was trying to suggest that they were at odds with the traditional American values of responsibility and work and family. Clinton was trying to seize those ideas back. That's where the tug of war in 1995 was taking place. Gingrich had Frank Luntz, and Gingrich's own obsession with tactics, Clinton and Dick Morris were fighting the uh, for the opposite uh, army. Clinton wrote in his memoir about a trip to Montana in which the image makers staged a photo op of him riding a horse. See, not a liberal, was the message. Fellow knows how to ride a horse. All savvy whistle-stop listeners know and understand that stagecraft is part of the presidency, and that's what Bill Clinton and his team knew, too. Voters who think you are one of them because of how you ride a horse will give you the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the big budget fight. And if you need a particular lesson in that again and think that this is just some kind of modern 
issue. You'll remember that in the 1948 election, that uh, when Truman would come down off his whistle-stop train, he would often amaze the locals by his knowledge of things that they thought only people in their community understood and that they didn't expect a former haberdasher or a politician way way the hell out in Washington to know about. One of those things was when he looked inside the mouth of a horse and was able to tell its age by counting its teeth. And there was a quote from uh, the person who owned the horse uh, about how surprised he was that that Truman was like one of them. Well, during Clinton's trip to Montana, he remembers in his memoir, My Life, that's the name of the memoir, that a farmer said about him, he's all right, and he ain't anything like they make him out to be. Clinton wrote in his memoir, I heard that a lot in 1995 and just hoped I wouldn't have to bring perception into line with reality one voter at a time. While Clinton was on the farm, Newt Gingrich was tickling through those items on the checklist, but his cause was hindered by the very kind of wordplay that he had perfected coming into office. He had two memorable stumbles that realigned the balance of power in Washington. While talking about reforming welfare, Gingrich floated the idea of orphanages for teenage mothers who were unable to care for their children. That's where some of the money saved from aid to families with dependent children, block grants, could be spent. The idea of Republicans was they were going to block grant the money for AFDC, which was the main welfare program, back to the states. And then that money would be used as the states saw fit. And when they saved the money, it could be spent on things like orphanages, which Gingrich argued would ameliorate some of the underlying issues that had led to the need for the AFDC payments in the first place. Instead of recognizing the power of the term orphanages, though, Gingrich shot back at critics and said, They should, quote, go to Blockbuster and rent the Mickey Rooney movie about Boys Town. That didn't work either. Polls showed that vast majorities of Americans did not like the idea of orphanages at all. Next, the Gingrich Congress advocated block-granting money to the states for for the school lunch program. States would have a mandate from the federal government to spend at least 80% on meals for economically disadvantaged children. Of course, the problem here was... A, 80% was less than they'd been getting before, and the notion that states would make up for the deficit by being more efficient was uh, yet to be tested, and states would be making the determination about what exactly qualified for a child as economically disadvantaged. So this looked like that it was social experimentation on the most vulnerable, kids at school who needed warm lunches. It was identical in a, in a lot of ways like the, uh, to the block granting that was a part of the replacement efforts for the Affordable Care Act by the uh, Congress in the early – in the first year of the Trump administration. The argument was then, made by Paul Ryan and others, that if you block granted back to the states, they would protect ex- preexisting condition and lower costs because they were at the state level. Uh, this did not um, succeed as an argument in the larger public. Election success had offered Newt Gingrich and the Republicans of Congress a mandate, but it was limited, it seemed, from these two episodes on orphanages and school lunches. And so Republicans were learning here as they implemented their policies and talked about it and had to deal with the nuts and bolts of implementing them, these policies, uh, that there were limitations and that the country was seeking balancing. They weren't on for orphanages and school lunch reductions. These are the early signs of the, of the constraints uh, that would work in President Clinton's favor as the two would get into a more raucous contest at the end of the year of 1995. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma was bombed. Those of you who have listened to the whistle stop on that sad episode in American life know very well about all of that. 
For those of you who haven't listened to that episode, I recommend it, but I'm not going to repeat it here. Just to say that in, his, in the aftermath, a president who had once had to defend the relevance of his office became immediately relevant. Clinton's approval rating jumped from 42% to 51% after the bombing. The public response boosted his confidence and allowed Clinton to continue the move he'd been on since the beginning of the year to get back to the middle. But most important, it set him up as the protector of American values against a movement that was going too far. The Republican Congress and talk show radio hosts who had wielded words so effectively and precisely suddenly found themselves on the defensive against the charge that their words, their harsh words, had invited the attack, even for those who didn't go that far, into buying that argument. It is nevertheless the case that the bruised nation turned to the lawmaker who had the talent for soothing and cooling words, which is to say Bill Clinton, not the field general who had used those words as weapons which is to say Newt Gingrich. So the argument I'm making here is that even if you don't buy the idea that, the, that, that Gingrich's political standing was diminished because people blamed him for creating the conditions that led to the Oklahoma City bombing, and surely there were some people who did that, the bombing nevertheless created a condition for a lowering of the register of the national debate, for more civility, for – and Bill Clinton – preached that in his public moments, taking full advantage of the platform of the presidency. It was the first time, said Clinton's speechwriter Michael Waldman, that Clinton had been a reassuring figure rather than an unsettling one. And that's where we're going to conclude our first episode on the shutdowns of 1995. It's the story of a president falling and rising and the Speaker of the House reversing that. In our next episode, we'll see how both men manage the short strokes during the end of 1995, and how it set the tone to define an era. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slade Podcasts is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop crackerjack researcher and in-house historian is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Henson is the master manager of the research Brian provides and the patient spirit in the Google document as I write. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio who helped make this episode happen as he has so many others on the CBS end. Thanks everyone for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop.